Okay. All right. Chodesh uh, Tov. Good Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, everyone. This is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario for webyeshiva.org, um, a platform for excellent Torah education. Um, and we are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are in chapter, we're going to start chapter eight today. We're going to spend a couple of weeks on chapter eight, just two weeks on chapter eight. Um, uh, at what we'll do the majority of the chapter today, and we're going to focus on a special topic about language, um, God willing, next week. Uh, in the Pines edition, which we've been using for this entire course, uh, we are on page 430 in the Guide for the Perplexed Shlomo Pines edition. Um, and let us get our bearings. The first seven chapters of the third section of Morena Vuchim, which we have already covered, have all been about this principle called Ma'asei Merkava, or trying to understand a little bit, just a surface understanding of the metaphysical realm, that is the divine realm and God's influence to the celestial realm, which in turn influences the terrestrial realm or the sublunary realm, or perhaps we could call it the material realm. And ma the material realm is really what we want to focus on in this chapter. Now, in order for us to at least understand the continuity, the hemsheikh of the chapters of this third section, let us recall that the general theme of the third section is all about divine providence, that God is, direct, is an interactive God with our realm of existence, and that there is sachar va'onesh, that there is reward and punishment. In order for reward and punishment to be a system of justice, it would only make sense that man has free will and has to choose between choosing the good versus choosing the evil, that which is not desirable. Uh, it does also necessitate that evil and defect and flaw exists in our realm. And as the Rambam will explain, the origin of all of evil is based on the fact that we live in a material realm, a realm that is comprised of matter. We recall that the Rambam had taught us, based on his uh, being a student of Aristotle, that all of sublunary existence is comprised of this dichotomous system of matter and form. Um, and we've talked extensively about this all the way back since uh, the first section of Moren of Uchim, that everything is comprised of the form, the, the, um, the non-material uh, component of it, which imbues it with its shape, its features, its texture, its characteristics, and the matter which is the, um, the shapeless material by which the form imbues the matter with its uh, contours and its, and its characteristics and features. But, the, but matter uh, is divided into four elements. That's what we had learned from the Rambam's depiction of Ma'asei Merkava. And just to be able to understand the continuity one of the most salient features of the Ma'asei Merkava depiction in the first and tenth chapters of Ezekiel is the fact that there is a description of something called the Galgalim uh, or the Chayot and then something called the Ofanim, two realms of angelic 
beings, but which the Rambam had defined as chayot, beings the celestial bodies, and the ofanim being the elements that exist in this world. And what essentially the Rambam had explained is that the celestial realm influences and in some way is rochev, controls or rides upon the ofanim and causes these ofanim to coalesce and form into their various different elemental uh, characteristics, all being made from matter. And the celestial bodies also imbue the matter that exists in our realm with form as well. Ultimately, originating from the, the divine realm, which is above the celestial realm, channeling that influence, the divine influence through the celestial bodies, through these sentient intellectual uh, uh, organisms that, are, that exist in the cosmos, and through their motion, the elements, the matter and form coalesce into real things in our world. Now, um, because this is all controlled by God, this is something that the Rambam wants to impress upon us, is that the world that we find ourselves in today is comprised of good and bad, is comprised of man's free will to be able to choose, and this is all part of the divine plan that God wants man to choose the good and to reject the evil. And in so doing, by choosing good and rejecting evil, man is able to attain excellence for himself and an attachment to God and to be deserving of the reward that God wishes to provide to man. Um, this is all part and parcel of the, of the system that the Rambam had started to describe when he talked about the Maasei Merkava. Now, in particular, what the Rambam wants to point out to us is that using this dichotomous model of matter and form, form is perfect, excellent, and everlasting, and matter is the thing that causes degradation and change and evil. Um, and this is where we're going to be coming into our chapter. I'm going to be sharing my screen with you. Um, so before we actually begin the text, I want to hearken back to something that we had studied a very long time ago. Um, back in section one, chapter 17, we had given an, an introduction, and I invite you to go back and listen to that uh, shiur whenever you have the opportunity. It's available on podcasts everywhere. It's also available on the webyeshiva.org platform, and it's also on the YouTube channel for the Bayat Synagogue in Toronto. Um, but in any event, uh, and it's also actually on ou.org, you can find it anywhere. But the discussion that we started with is that Aristotle very much believed in matter and form, but he also had this difficulty with this concept of change. How do things change? How is it that something can originate from nothing? If you recall, Aristotle had concluded that there, the universe is steady state. That is, that it is essentially an unchanging existence that is eternally existed. And yet we note that things do change in our world and that things either um, decompose over the course of time or they evolve and coalesce into something, into structures that are more complex, you know, that uh, children or babies are born and animals reproduce and flowers, new flowers grow where old flowers had died. How do all of these changes come about? And so Aristotle had come, uh, come to provide us 
with this idea, and I have this quote for you at the beginning of our discussion today, that Aristotle was puzzled about change because uh, what, is, what is does not come to be, since it already is, and nothing comes to be from nothing. So how do you get something from nothing? So Aristotle, uh, Aristotle's account is contained in his book called Physics. He insists that there must be three basic ingredients in every case of change. In addition to a pair of opposites, meaning matter and form, there must be an underlying subject of change. In other words, there is this tendency for matter to constantly try and acquire new form. The basic case of change involves a pair of opposed or contrary properties and a subject that loses one of them and gains the other. In other words, we have matter in form, we have something material, and it is constantly going to attain one form and then lose that form and attain a different form. The ingredients Aristotle insists are, are un an underlying subject, matter, a form, a positive property, and a lack of that form. Aristotle's examples illustrate these ingredients. You have, he gives two examples in his book, Physics. He's, let's talk about a man who was unmusical. Let's say, for example, a person uh, does, does not know how to play the trumpet, but there's a drive within him that tells him, I would feel more fulfilled if I knew how to play the trumpet. And therefore he goes and takes lessons and learns and learns until finally he becomes a new, a person with a new form, so to speak, a new kind of intellectual endowment, which is the ability to play the trumpet. That is a person who was previously with a, let's say, an inferior form to himself, that is a person lacking musicality, and he transformed himself or changed himself to a person possessing musicality, the ability to play the trumpet. Now, how does that change come about? Well, in the case of the human being, there's an internal drive or instinct or desire that the human being has to evolve from a person of lower form to a person of higher form. But then Aristotle gives a second example. Let's say you have a chunk of bronze and this chunk of bronze will eventually be formed into a statue. Aristotle said that there's this fascinating idea that even though the chunk of bronze is inanimate and insentient, it doesn't have a mind with which to think, but there is nonetheless an instinct within the bronze to constantly strive to evolve to a higher form. So even though the bronze, so to speak, does not have any sentience whatsoever, there's nonetheless sort of like an instinct within the bronze to attach itself to a higher form of existence. And therefore, just as much as the sculptor sculpts the bronze into a statue, we would say that the bronze, as it were, was driven or impulsed to become a statue as well. This is a concept, this, there's a word that Aristotle gives for this, he calls it an entelechy, um, uh, it, meaning an inner purpose or an end. This gives matter the potential for becoming formed. To describe this process a little more poetically, one author writes, we might say that matter yearns for form and united with it, matter becomes formed. 
Now, in order to, so in order, the reason why I wanted to give this introduction is because we really need to appreciate this idea in order to understand anything that the Rambam writes in this chapter. Now, the Rambam is going to have a very negative attitude towards matter and all material things. And one of the reasons why he's going to have this negative attitude is because matter is a very fickle partner. In other words, I might think that I might possess something that is of a material nature, but because of the drive of matter to constantly evolve and change its form, I cannot rely on matter to stay the way it is for any extended period of time. And therefore, because change comes about in this world through this entelechy, through this instinct or drive within all material things to constantly be changing, it is therefore not worthwhile for the human being to pursue material things. The human being should strive to pursue those things which are permanent and unchanging, and therefore more resemblant to God as a result. If we therefore look back at the Ma'asei Merkava, the act of the chariot, we see that even though God ultimately is controlling everything that is emanated into our world, there are negative properties in our world that are associated with matter, and therefore it is man's obligation to avoid those things in order to live a virtuous and noble life. So, the end of the chapter is where the Rambam tells us, and I just wanted to jump to one of the last lines of the chapter. The Rambam is telling us that there's a bit of a digression in this, in this chapter because the Rambam never meant for Moren Nevuchim to be a book about Musar, to be a book about teaching ethics to human beings. The Rambam actually did write a treatise on ethics. It is his introduction to Pirkei Avot, called Shmoneh Prakim, and therefore he didn't view Moren Nevuchim as a, as a discourse on ethics. However, in describing God's system and his interaction with our world, the Rambam does feel it necessary at this point to let us know that the whole basis of God being providential is predicated on the fact that he presented us with a world that is a mishmash of good and evil, and it is therefore up to man to make the proper decisions to live nobly so that he, at the end of a life well lived, he will end up connecting with his creator and receive the divine, uh, divine countenance. So, the first thing that the Rambam wants to tell us, and we'll just read the first sentence of the chapter on page 430, is that all bodies subject to generation and corruption are attained by corruption only because of their matter. With regard to form and with respect to the latter's essence, they are not attained by corruption, but are permanent. Matter is constantly changing. Form is the, the only thing that is permanent in our world, constantly jumping from one material item to another as the matter, so to speak, allows it to attach the, itself to the form. So therefore, form is perfect and timeless. Matter is subject to corruption and change and yearns constantly for this change. Hence, no form remains constantly or permanently in matter, for it perpetually puts off one form and puts on another. And then the Rambam tells us that the analogy is therefore made by King Solomon in the book of Proverbs that all of matter is compared to an unfaithful wife. He compares matter to a married harlot already possessing a husband, its current form, since matter can never be without form in this world, 
but always seeking out new and improved husbands with which it can attain improved form. And furthermore, just like a, an unfaithful wife might be someone uh, who is in, uh, looked upon with disdain, there's a further disdainful feature of matter, that matter acts as the seductress. As to quote from the Rambam, she deceives and draws him on in every way until he obtains from her what her husband used to obtain. In other words, form, so to speak, is seduced by material items, matter, to so that the form is drawn to the matter and is constantly um, causing this change to uh, appear in matter. And this is all analogized by King Solomon to the unfaithful woman in Proverbs chapter 6. I'm actually not going to get too much into too much detail about this whole idea that women are associated with matter, males are associated with form. There are a number of reasons for this, and it all has to do with the male and female of the inanimate existing in the abstract in Judaic literature and also in, in uh, non-Judaic literature as well. I don't want anyone uh, who, uh, anyone who uh, is uh, sort of uh, looking at this text and seeing that it is somewhat anachronistic with male and female stereotypes of today and say that it is in any way misogynistic, that's certainly not the, the way that the Rambam is, uh, is oriented. He's not a misogynist, but he does recognize that in, in, the, in the human construct, male and female also are representative of abstract ideas female representing that which receives form, and male is that which endows the form into the material. Okay, so matter as the source of evil and defect, the deformity, the Rambam writes, of a person's form, the fact that you might find people who are disfigured or in some way have any flaw or defect in their physical construct, the fact that his limbs do not conform to their nature, and also the weakness, the cessation, or the troubling of all of his functions. As people age, they start to, their bodies start to break down. All this is consequent upon his corrupt matter and not upon his form. In other words, as I get older and I'm no longer able to, to function physically as well as I used to, all of that is the result of my matter, that my form as a human being retains its pristine status throughout my existence no matter how much my body may change over the course of time. Every living, every living being dies and becomes ill solely because of its matter and not its form. All man's acts of disobedience and sins are consequent upon his matter and not his form, whereas all virtues are consequent upon his form. Um, and of course, we know, going back to the very first chapter of Moren Nebuchim in the first section, man's form is his Tselem Elohim, is his image of God. And therefore, that's perfect. There's nothing imperfect or flawed about that. So where does man's evil come from? Where does man's evil inclination, his desire for evil, all of that is based on the fact that he is a composite being of both matter and form, of both body and spirit. All, that's all the same for the Rambam. And uh, as a result, a man must learn how to coexist within himself with both the good and the bad. And as we'll see, the Rambam is going to give us an exhortation that a noble person lives a life attaching himself or focusing on his form and not on his matter. So some examples, 
higher thoughts of God and all and thinking about things as they truly are, having a higher cerebral experience, uh, uh, controlling one's impulses, all of that is because of the form within man, what we would call in other texts, his yetzer hatov, his good inclination. But eating, drinking, copulation, desire for material things, anger, and other bad traits, those are all because of a person's matter. Because the nature of this existence is that form cannot exist without matter, God implanted man's divine form, that is the Tselem Elohim, into a material body. It is then man's duty to sublimate his matter and dominate it. And in a sense, that's really one way of reading the uh, text that God blessed man with in Genesis chapter 1. That God blessed man, and God said to them, in other words, man and woman, Peru urvu, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the land and conquer it. Meaning the word aretz is a code word for all that is material. And fill the material with your form and also sublimate it, conquer it. And have domination over anything else that is material in this realm. Now then the Rambam says there are different levels of humans. And as a result, he's going to exhort his reader to become a higher level of human being. There are those, and we're quoting from the text, there are those who aspire to prefer that which is most noble and to seek a state of perpetual permanence according to what is required by their noble form. They focus their intellects on abstract lofty ideas and on truthful matters and seek union with the divine intellect, which the Rambam seems to be referring to the active intellect, which we've talked about in previous chapters, so that there is in, in the... Uh, in the cosmic realm, in the celestial realm, this great intelligence that emanates ultimately from God, but that man has the ability to attach himself with this disembodied intellect, which can provide man with enhanced divine intellect. Whenever this person finds himself drawn towards the physical, such a noble person feels pain and shame and seeks to diminish his contact as much as possible. And that's why you have the, the, the idea that asceticism, to some degree, is considered a virtue. This is like a subject whom the king, king wishes to humiliate by having him transport dung. Such a person will seek to minimize this activity and hide it from others as much as possible. The idea of trying to take the, the beautiful material things of this world, such as food and drink and sexuality, and, and putting them on display, that's something that the noble person rejects because he says that that which is material is the source of creating all of the things that I don't like about myself, the things that are imperfect about myself, that are subject to flaw, corruption, and evil. And therefore, even though I am a being that is attached to the physical and I have no choice but to be a physical being, I wish to minimize those activities which are purely physical, and anything that I do which is physical should be done behind closed doors because it's embarrassing me for me, uh, for me to, uh, let's say, acknowledge that I have this failing. So it's quite interesting that just like a person would want to cover up his private parts instinctively and want to only engage in sexual activity behind closed doors, the Rambam says the same thing about eating and drinking, which to us really doesn't, that doesn't resonate as much with us because uh, 
you know, just look at a kiddish after shul on Shabbos, and you'll find people uh, partaking of very extravagant foods quite openly and proudly. But for the Rambam, they're all part of this material indulgence, which is not going to end up helping man. This person is especially shamed by physical indulgences related to the sense of touch, such as eating, drinking, and sexual activity. We refer the reader back to Morena Vuchim, section 2, chapter 36, where he quoted Aristotle directly saying that the sense of touch is the most universal of all senses. It's the commonality we share with animals. So when a person uh, indulges in the things that give him sensual pleasure, especially having to do with things that he has to come in contact with physically, such as eat, food, drink, and sexual pleasure, those are things that are animalistic in nature because we're no different from animals in those three respects. A man should thus restrict his indulgence in these things, control his impulses, and only intake what is absolutely necessary. And to quote the text, he should take as his objective that which is the end of man qua man, namely solely the mental representation of the intelligibles, the most certain and noblest of which being the apprehension, and as far as this is possible, of the deity, of the angels, and of his other works. As it says, if a person obtains that level, then God pronounces about that person, Ani amarti Elohim atem You are godlike, and you are uh, princes of, of, of lofty stature. And, and that's really what a person should strive for, thinking about God, thinking about things that are detached from the material, thinking about the celestial realm and the angels and so forth. As to that which is absolutely necessary, such as eating and drinking, he must confine himself to what is most useful and to what corresponds to the need for nourishment, not to pleasure. And so therefore, of course, a person has to eat and drink, but don't eat for pleasuring oneself, but rather eat to nourish oneself. And, uh, and that would mean that any kind of Epicurean experience that is so extolled by our society today, even in the religious Jewish world, is something that the Rambam would look down upon and say, it's not good. This is not a good thing, this trend of people posting photos of the restaurants that they went to and uh, showing all of the exotic foods that they were able to eat and spend exorbitant prices on those things and really live to be able to go to that fancy restaurant. The Rambam would say, that's really not the way a noble person should be living their life. Then he says, by contrast, you have other types of human beings. What we've described up until now is the noble human being of a higher level of humanity. But then we have the slave, he says, which represents the lower level of humanity. Such a slave who is told by the king to schlep around dung feels no shame and is happy to frolic in the dung. He throws himself with his whole body into the dung and filth, soils his face and hands, and carries the dung in public, laughing the while, and rejoicing and clapping his hands. Okay, um, such people refrain from all thought and perception about any intelligible thing and take as their end the sense that is our greatest shame, I mean the sense of touch given to eating, drinking, and copulation. As it says, and he quotes this from Isaiah chapter 28, These people err by indulging in wine and intoxicants. And even the, the priest and the prophet, 
make these kinds of errors. They and again, just reiterating how the, they in, indulge in the pleasures of this world and end up all of the tables are filled with this vomit, makom, and 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 waste without any place left for anything productive to do. In other words, we wallow in our own waste is really the analogy that the Rambam is giving when we indulge in these physical pleasures. They are as ruled by women, as it says, the Isaiah describes the sinful person as vinashlim vinashim mashluvo, ruled over by the feminine, meaning the, the material. Instead of fulfilling God's original directive to Adam and Eve, that when God is speaking to Eve and he punishes her for having partaken of the tree, and it's, by the way, for the Rambam, no coincidence that Eve is the origin point for eating of the tree because the female is associated with the material, with the indulgence. And when he curses Eve, he says to her, your husband will be your source of attaching to and he will rule over you. Instead of you ruling over him, your husband will rule over you. And in this analogy of male-female form and matter, it is much more proper for form to rule over matter instead of matter ruling over form, the woman ruling over the man. And quote, for this reason, Solomon has devoted the whole of Proverbs to warnings against fornication and intoxicating drink. For those who are the objects of divine wrath and who are remote from God are plunged deeply into these two vices. Now you see, of course, that what the Rambam is doing is providing some kind of ethical treaties over here. And he's telling man that he must choose wisely and reject the material and cling to the permanent form of all things, to the Yetzir Hatov, to the good inclination, to focusing on those things that are immaterial. And then the Rambam qualifies everything that he said in one very short statement where he talks about this concept of virtuous matter. What do we mean by virtuous matter? There are all different kinds of material things in this world. There are some kinds of material things which are much more ethereal, much less rooted in evil than other kinds of material things. And therefore the form that those material things attach themselves to are of a higher order and less prone to drag man down. And that's really the reason why Shlomo HaMelech wrote the, the chapter in chapter 31 of Proverbs, a homage to a woman of valor. The woman of valor is a metaphor for those material things that exist in our realm that are going to help elevate man instead of dragging man down. It's a parable for the person who is able to be made of a higher form of matter that doesn't dominate him or corrupt his rectified state. This the Rambam calls a gift from God. If a person is able to find those things, perhaps you'd say that maybe, you know, he eats only healthy food, only vegetation instead of, you know, the red meat, or things of that nature, or, or instead of drinking red wine, he drinks water, and water might be something that is more of an elevated kind of material item that is not going to drag man down. If a person wants to hydrate himself, much better for him to have water than it would be for him to have wine or another intoxicant. If a person is hungry, eat something which will be healthy for you and won't um, sort of draw you towards wanting to indulge further. 
right? Those are the material things that are called the woman of valor, the Eshet Chayil. Either way, I don't think anyone has this in mind when they say Eshet Chayil on Friday night. But be that as it may, maybe we should start thinking of those things before we sit down to the sumptuous Shabbos meal and start thinking to ourselves when we say Eshet Chayil, you know what? Let me have this in mind that I want to only engage in the, the kinds of foods that are not going to draw me into the physical realm any further. Either way, whether one is made up of a higher form of matter that is easily bridled or of a coarser matter, it is always possible to sublimate even the coarsest of matter. This is the function of Proverbs to help one in this endeavor. In other words, what is the underlying current of this, of this chapter is that man is endowed with free will, that enables him to sublimate those things in his environment which are material and which will pull him away from godliness and virtue. Even the coarsest type of matter in a person's realm, the kishka and all of that, and the cholent and all of that other stuff that's going to pull a person away and help him indulge in the physical, even the coarsest of material things a man can sublimate and say, enough, I'm going to elevate the, the matter that I am attached, uh, find myself attached to and not submit or, or, or uh, succumb to it. Next, the, and this is really the final point that we'll study for today, the need to minimize speech and, and gathering together for the purpose of physical indulgence. The Rambam feels that people should not be talking about material indulgence, and certainly people should not create gatherings like parties where the sole focus is physical indulgence. And he quotes the Talmud in Psachim that tells us, we know that one should not gather for food except for a seudat mitzvah. As Rabbi Yitzchak teaches in Tractate Psachim, kol gole, anyone who benefits from a party which doesn't have a mitzvah function attached to it will eventually go into exile. And as the sages also state, kol talmid chacham makom, sof machriv et beito, etc., etc., that any Torah scholar who is overly indulgent in his meals will eventually destroy his house, will widow his wife, will orphan his children, will forget his studies, and will be involved in tremendous strife. His words will not be heard. He will end up disgracing God, um, etc., etc., etc. Now, as to gathering to drink spirits, the Rambam says that's actually probably even worse than gathering for food. You should regard them as more shameful than gatherings of naked people with uncovered private parts who defecate openly while sitting together. This is because, he says, defecating is a necessary bodily function, whereas drinking alcohol is not at all necessary. I find this a fascinating analogy. The Rambam says that if people get together, stam, just to be able to be drinking buddies, to gather at a saloon for drinking wine or to drink spirits, he says that is the most abject and shameful thing. You'd be better off gathering together naked to, to defecate together in, as, as, as friends because defecation is something that's a natural, necessary bodily function. But nowhere is it, nowhere is it written that it's necessary for a person to drink spirits. Furthermore, being naked is instinctively shunned not something that one knows based on intellect, 
but the corruption of the intellect and the body is shunned even by the intellect. Intellectually, people understand that getting drunk and trying to lose one's intellectual sharpness is wrong. One who prefers to be a human ought to shun it and not even speak about it. And uh, so it's clear that the Rambam was addressing a certain social ill in his society at the time. We know from other writings uh, in the Islamic Jewish world at this time that even Talmidei Chachamim used to gather for um, drinking together and writing poetry and singing songs. And perhaps the Rambam is very, very critical of this. And now with regard to copulation with sexual activity, he says, see my Mishnah commentary uh, in Pirkei Avot, as the, the, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot says, do not speak excessively with a woman. And if this is true by not speaking excessively with your own wife, then surely with someone else's wife. And the Mishnah concludes by saying that anyone who speaks excessively with a woman will cause evil for himself, will cause himself to be um, distracted from studying sublime Torah ideas, in other words, losing his intellectual connection to the, to the immaterial, and will inherit Gehenna, will inherit purgatory. And as the Rambam writes very tersely in his Mishnah commentary, he says, He says, we know that many times when men speak with women, they provide there's some kind of sexual innuendo always incorporated in that conversation. And that's why the Mishnah discourages us from uh, discourages men from being engaged in conversation with women. It's only going to arouse man to become more uh, desirous of gratifying himself physically. In other words, the Rambam is a pragmatist, and he says that uh, even though there is such a thing as two human beings of the opposite gender speaking quite innocently, Nevertheless, there's always that uh, aspect of sexuality that creeps into a conversation between men and women, and that's why the Rambam feels that it needs to be avoided to avoid any kind of uh, kirvat, any kind of uh, coming close to doing something which is an indulgence in the material. Our sages thus teach that both Jacob and Elisha were saintly people because they did not think of these matters and did not have inadvertent seminal emissions. So the Rambam certainly is advocating shunning excessive food, drink, and sexual activity. And the last thing, I'm sorry, I, I, meant, I thought this was, the previous one was the last, but this one is the last. The Rambam makes a very, very important point, and he makes a declaration uh, based on the, a statement in the, in the Talmud in Tractate Yoma, which says, thoughts of sin are worse than the sin itself. Here, hurei avera kashume avera. Right, And the question is, how do you understand this? How can you say that thinking about sin is even worse than performing the sin itself? And the Talmud says that it's Recha de Bisra, that you can compare that to the smell of meat. That's what the Talmud says. And Rashi, in his interpretation of that Gemara, says that if a person eats meat, that'll harm him in one way. But if a person just smells meat, in other words, has the non-physical indulgence in the material, 
like thinking about sin without sinning, that's even more harmful because it's only going to corrupt your thoughts and it's going to cause you to want to sin even more. But the Rambam says, I have a wondrous interpretation, biur nifla, the Rambam says. When a man sins, he does so, as I have explained, because of his material aspect, his animal drives. But thought is one of the properties of the human being that are consequent upon his form. If he gives his thought a free scope in respect to disobedience, he commits an act of disobedience through the nobler of this, of the two parts. What the Rambam is essentially saying is, if you're going to indulge in the material, use your material, your lower animalistic component, to indulge in the material. But if you're going to indulge in the material and you're going to use the form aspect of yourself, your intellect, your tselem elokim, the thing which makes you human, and that's the part of you of you that is indulgent in the physical, he says you're corrupting that which is noble about you and utilizing it for the material. Better to use the material part of yourself for the material indulgence than the noble spiritual aspect of yourself the form aspect of yourself to indulge in the physical. The sin of him who does an injustice through making an ignorant slave serve him is not like the sin of him who makes a free man who is excellent serve him. And that's the analogy that the Rambam uh, uh, goes with to explain why it's wrong to use your intellect to think about these things. And in, in a sense, it's even worse than actually committing the sin itself. Now, there's one last topic that the Rambam engages in at the end, the last page of chapter eight. I believe this is a very important topic which deserves a treatment on its own, a full, at least a half hour on its own, and I'm going to therefore leave that for next week. It'll be entitled our discussion, What Makes Language Holy? And again, it is going back on this on this whole treatise that the Rambam is presenting us, admittedly a digression from describing the divine system of how our world works and divine providence, but in a sense, exhorting man to choose properly in life and also to use his speech, just like a person has to use his thoughts responsibly. He also has to use his speech responsibly. And that's something that we'll look into next time. Thank you for sticking with us. And we'll continue Bezrat Hashem, God willing, next week. Take care, everybody. Thank you very much.